Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a British novelist and playwright. Nearly two decades since he published his previous books, he's now released his third novel. And it's wonderful. The Ghost Variations is a quiet and stunning story about a world-class pianist who gives up his glittering career after the mysterious death of his wife. Damien Lanigan, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thanks for having me. I don't know if you've noticed, but I hope that there's been a tiny spike in your book sales over the last couple of weeks, because since I've read The Ghost Variations, I have been pressing it into the hands of absolutely everybody I've met. Well, that is very, very kind. And I tend to avoid my sales figures as much as possible, probably for the good of my mental health. But if there has been a spike, then you are probably entirely responsible. So thank you for that. Well, I'm really hoping after people have heard about this book that all of our listeners will pick up a copy because honestly, this book was revelatory to me. It's about, normally I'm going to say it's about music, but I have never before read anything that has got into the heart of music. It felt to me like you were writing from inside music. And I just found it extraordinary. And what I find even more astonishing is in our chat just now, you've told me you don't play an instrument. Don't play an instrument, never have. There was a time I did actually buy a piano when I lived in New York. I had probably four or five lessons and realised extremely quickly that I was not able to do this. And it's a mental attitude. It's about being able to do repetitive tasks over vast swathes of time, making tiny alterations that have a big influence upon what is actually the sound that comes out. And I couldn't do it. I went into piano lessons in awe of pianists, and I emerged from my set of six in even greater awe. And obviously they like doing it, which is the difference. I hate it. I was setting myself 30 minutes practice, and by the 28th minute I was internally screaming for it to stop. (laughs) So eventually I thought, I'm not quite sure why I'm doing this because I'm not going to be Maurizio Pollini anytime soon and I'm hating it, so maybe I should quit. So yeah, that was about three months of my life was given over to occasionally having a piano lesson. For your very kind statement about being inside the music, that might be something to do with... I do listen to an awful lot of it and it became a little bit of an obsessive thing with me. And if I'm wandering around town... This is going to sound a bit nuts, bear with me. (laughs) If I'm wandering around town, I'm usually or most often thinking about something to do with music, whether I've just listened to a Mahler symphony, I'm thinking about that, I've just read a book and I'm thinking about some of the things it, it threw up. So it was inevitable or natural for me to write a book in the milieu. And then obviously I had to fake being in the head of this prodigy person. You know, I've read quite a few books about pianists. It wasn't a couple of musician friends of mine read it and said it is quite remarkable that you're not a musician. But actually... I didn't find it... I think I'm not going to give myself any credit. It's just if you spend a lot of time, like I have, listening to a lot of music and reading about it, it's not that hard to fake. It really isn't. I'd be much happier doing that than most other things, in fact, which is why I did it, probably. (laughs) Now, this is your third book, and all of them seem to be about the possibility of failure. (laughs) And before we get into those books individually, what I'd like to just have a quick look at is your your own life and your failures and successes along the way. You come from the north of England. 
Yes, I was born in Coventry and moved to Manchester when I was two. I went to grammar school up there, then I went to Oxford to study English. So I was a kind of, in the way I'm now a music fanatic, in my teenage years I was a literature crackpot. But I never wrote a word. You know, a lot of my friends were writing stuff and experimental short stories and mini plays and things. I never did. When I left university, I did nothing, precisely nothing for a year, worked in Harrods and things like that. And then I got a job in the advertising business. And I stopped reading. Once I left university, I was working my job. I had my new mates. I was in London and I was having a good time. And I just almost completely stopped reading for about four or five years. Then my job situation changed a little bit. And somebody, this is a little later, said, have you read this book by Nick Hornby called, I think it was About a Boy, or I can't remember, High Fidelity, maybe. Uh, it's really funny. And I read it. I didn't think it was that funny. And <laughs> preposterously, it seemed to me, as I'd never written a word of fiction my entire life, set out to write a book that was funnier than High Fidelity. That was it. <laughs> and at the time, I was running my friend's little business in a warehouse in Acton, we won't go into that too much. And I had Why a was of, it illegal? It wasn't illegal. It wasn't illegal, but it certainly externally looked as if it could easily be illegal. <laughs> right, moving on. Yeah, and so I just started writing. I just thought, what shall I do? I, I, and I'd, I'd read a piece in, like, was it Loaded or something that had this ranking system in it? And I just thought, oh, well, here's a guy who runs his whole life, a bit like the Dice Man, but you know, he runs his whole life by this sort of grid upon which he, he grades his own success and failure. And it was called Stretch 29, and at the time of him narrating, he was scoring 29 out of 100, hence the title. And around this time, I was moving to New York with my wife. And astonishingly, I mean, I sent it off to three agents, I think, because I didn't even know what was going on. Back in, like, there was no internet. I'm like, oh, this person, and I stuck the in a bag, and I just sent it off. And about two weeks after I sent it off, I got a call, I got a letter, I think, in fact, saying, we want to rep you, and we also think we also have a deal for you. So what happened was, in 1999, on the Friday night, I found out I got a book deal. On the Saturday, I got married. And on the Sunday, I emigrated to New York. <laughs> so, so I compressed an entire chapter of a biography into about 36 hours. Extraordinary. Yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a funny one. And then I arrived in New York, and I had to rewrite and things like that. But I had, my, I had a really quite nice deal from HarperCollins. And I had no idea how to be a writer. I wasn't, I'm not a writer. I'm somebody who wrote a book who had no aspiration to be a writer. I had an aspiration simply to be slightly funnier than Nick Hornby, which is straight like an odd one. And yeah, I was wandering around for ages, actually, thinking I'm not sure what, what I'm supposed to be doing. But then I lived in New York for uh, 19 years. Over that period of time, I did do quite a lot of writing in the end. I did some radio, I did some TV, I did some theatre. Particularly my last few years there, I was focusing upon TV development and I did a pilot for NBC and things like that. But I'd stopped writing fiction because I felt quite dislocated in New York, even in the years when I really loved it. And I didn't want to write about New York as a disconnected outsider. And I didn't want to write about England because by the time I'd lived in New York for eight or nine years, England was incredibly alien to me. I'd come back and I'd be in my hotel, I'd turn on the TV, I'm like, who's that? I mean, you know, like the whole culture looked like England, but was populated by completely different characters. Mm. So I sort of lost my, and I'm quite influenced, maybe in this book it comes through as well, that place is really important to me. I have to like the place I'm in, I have to understand it, I have to feel situated in it in a sort of quite a profound way. And in New York, I sort of never was. And nobody is, that's the thing about New York, right? It's the cliche, but it's actually true. 
most people you meet in New York are visitors and they come in and they usually spin out at some point or eventually, if they're lucky enough, they stay put. But as an English person, I don't know. I couldn't write fiction. I could write this other stuff that was less deeply anchored, but in a way, the fiction, I couldn't really do. And what made me write this book was... Really, a friend of mine said, have you got any ideas for indie films? I know this crazy dude who wants to fund some indie movies. He'd made some money on a tech exit or something like everybody knew. And I just had this visual idea, which was the greenery of upstate New York and Connecticut and New England generally, and a guy driving through it, a guy who happened to be a pianist driving through it with this beautiful young woman. It's like the most cliched French movie opening <laughs> scene. For some reason, it was in my head. And I just started tinkering around with it. And then I read about a pianist called Ivo Pogorelic, who lost his wife and in very close quarters in extremely distressing circumstances. And I thought, how do you carry on with your life as an artist in this relatively marginal and super refined and somewhat unimportant, in a sense, sphere of life when you've had this thing happen to you. Your mm. wife dies in front of you. It must be absolutely impossible to get back. It seemed to me. And that's that was the mainspring of the story. And then the rest of it came through a bit of effort. Mm. I mean, as I say, failure does seem to, to link your book. So Stretch 29, your first one, your yeah. debut that came out in 2000, all about this ranking system of, yeah. of failure. Your next one, The Chances, is about a failed actor. And then this one, of course, we'll go into in a moment. But I just want to have a look at The Chances for a moment, because here's your actor and he's got one last chance of success. Right. Why do you think that this kind of failure keeps coming back into your work? I really don't know. I mean, it's a kind of dispositional thing, isn't it? So... Like every other 13-year-old boy, I fell in love with Catcher in the Rye, with Tess of the D'Urbervilles, with Philip Larkin. I was living in the Northwest, so everybody was listening to Joy Division, A New Order, and The Smiths. And picturesque miserabilism is a way of operating <laughs> for lots of people <laughs> up north, and I, I presume everywhere. And I can't do much about it. I mean, I, I actually i am not a particularly miserable person, but... It's an almost prurient interest in people's, in observing people's defeats and struggles. And I think what amplifies it in my case is that the three books are all first person. So it's you know, narrated very much from this position of feeling sort of slightly flattened by the world. And in the book I'm writing right now is a third person book and it gives a totally different, you have to present a totally different set of voices and set of narratives and it will not feel in any way as if it's about failure even though it's about things just as dark and interesting and what have you as, as the three that are done in the first person but I don't know I wish in a way I weren't so prone to think in these terms and I think it might even be just a set of thought patterns that get established early in your life and it's difficult to throw them off and the process of throwing them off is enacted when you're writing. Because even the worst book, I mean, I have no nothing but absolute respect for anybody, particularly anybody who writes more than three books. I'm like, you guys, I mean, all credit to you. I'm not particularly snobby about that kind of thing. Any kind of book completed, any level of competence to me is a great, is an achievement. So each one of the books, even though they might be rooted in some kinds of failure, to me feel like ultimately successes. I've made some art of whatever quality out of a bit of gloominess and a bit of cynicism and a bit of mistrust, but also a bit of 
I think there's vivacity there as well. I hope there is mm. because I never feel doomed or defeated. Or I mean, like Declan, my book. When you first meet him, he's at a pretty low ebb, but he does make the decision to go back and restart his career, which took him quite a large effort, bearing in mind what he'd been through. I mean, I don't want to ascribe some sort of simplistic redemption narrative, but um, you know, Larkin, extreme melancholy and uh, some would say depressing nature, he does redeem it in my eyes through his incredible technical skill and the beauty of insight. And it doesn't matter how sad the topic is, I never feel sad or depressed when I read Larkin. And I don't think if you read, and this is not a sales pitch, but I don't think if you read any of my books, maybe the second one is a bit too dark, that you would feel anything, you're not going to feel down in the dumps and that there's no point carrying on. They all managed to salvage something. Absolutely. Well, let's let's talk about Declan, your protagonist. He is a musician. He's a pianist. This terrible thing has happened to him. And his life, once he gets it back on track, is absolutely governed by this schedule. He has to play for like eight or nine hours a day. I mean, this is completely obsessive behaviour, but actually not unusual for a pianist at his level. Not at all unusual. There was a famous pianist called Sviatoslav Richter, a Russian pianist, who said he hardly ever practised. He was friendly with Shostakovich, said, well, he practised about 11 hours a day. They like to pretend they're not constantly at it, but you have to be. I mean, first of all, the level is so high. Nowadays, the level of virtuosity is insane, and you cannot get away with not being the highest technical level. And most of them have to be slightly crackers and very, very obsessive. You know, they can't wait, like Declan in the book, cannot wait to get back to the piano and work things through and read things through. And I think also the one thing I wish I had access to that I never will be able to have access to, the top-level pianists hear things completely differently from me. And when they're in the middle of practising, they're hearing sounds and resonances and chimes and patterns, and they're enjoying themselves much more than I will ever be able to. They're so immersed in the centre of this beautiful stuff. And... That's what takes them back. You wouldn't do it if you didn't like it. You obviously don't like certain aspects of it, living out of a suitcase and empty concerts and bad reviews like everybody else who's an artist. You don't like that kind of stuff. But uniformly, the pianists I've spoken to, it's the music that just draws them back. You know, the sense of, as you said before, this idea of being completely in the middle of something, completely immersed in something. And that is the kind of thing that might create obsessiveness, I think. Mm. You actually kind of concentrate on one particular piece of music. There's one piece of music that just means everything to Declan. Tell us about that. Yes, the Hammerclavier Sonata by Beethoven. It's a late, rather difficult, long, complicated piece of music that even Beethoven thought was a bit much. He said, oh God, nobody's going to be able to do all four movements. Why don't you just do the slow movement and maybe the first movement? Or why don't you just like lop off the last movement forever? Don't bother with it. I'll set it aside. And it's a rather disparate thing as well. It doesn't really have a huge amount of unity in some ways. And it's a monument of the piano literature. So it's regarded as being the grandest, if not the greatest of all piano sonatas. And in the book, Declan says that when he was very young, when he just won his first piano competition, he decided that his first recording would be the Hammerklavier. So he's, whatever, 17, 18 years old, and he records the Hammerklavier, which would be regarded as being somewhat precocious, maybe somewhat ill-advised, by the people in the know, for no particular reason. I think he can play it really, you know, any age. But anyway, he does it. And so it's the recording that sort of puts him on the map. And when he comes back 
after his wife's death, the condition upon him getting this big concert that features in the book is that he play Hammerclavier because the guy who sponsored the concert is obsessed with this myth of him coming back from his youthful triumph and restating it. And the piece lends itself towards obsessiveness. It has an absolutely astonishingly beautiful and mysterious slow movement. And at the end, it has this extremely spiky and difficult fugue movement, a very contrapuntal movement that sounds to our ears when we first hear it almost impossibly ugly. And the difficulty of it, the strangeness of it, is what keeps him coming back to it. And I think Mm. the complexity of it, but also the main reason why he is fixated upon it is that obviously it fundamentally represents what happened in his life, which he departed from himself in a way when he first recorded it as a young man. Because all of a sudden, he no longer had control over his destiny. Mm. Because now he was not just a piano prodigy... He was a world-famous virtuoso, and this is when his schedule kicks in and when his agent is sending him all over the world and when he's permanently on rails, on a train, he's in a taxi, he's at the concert, he leaves the concert to the hotel to get on the plane, the taxi and the, and the concert hall. And he did that for about nine or ten years, which is a long time. So all of a sudden this thing which you think you have mastery over, which is your gift, your talent is stolen from you by the infrastructure of the reality of being a performing concert pianist. And so when he goes back to Hammerclavier, what he's trying to do really is reclaim some of himself. Mm. And that's not the only piece of music that we get right into the heart of. I mean, I just really felt that I was looking at music from a completely different way. Were you listening to music as you wrote it? Well, I always listen to music. I mean, this is the other thing. that I had this conversation about the ways we listen. So I listen on my headphones a lot. And listening on your headphones can have a very, very powerful effect because you can start feeling this journey into the centre of what you're listening to, particularly if you know a piece well. So I'm always listening to music, but writing about music is difficult. The silly line about writing about music is like dancing about architecture. People have always written about music because it lends itself extremely well to being written about by somebody who's good at writing about it. You know, like, there's great music writing that always has been for centuries. And what you have to try and do is decide how you're going to go about it. I think I generally used analogy. So there's no musicology in there. I'm not talking about parallel fifths. I'm not talking about harmonic sequences and stuff like that. I'm talking about how to embody the experience of music in language, which is a tremendously fun thing to do. And if it works you feel quite pleased with yourself because you're like, well, that's actually somehow akin, which is what this is all, writing business is all about, right? And it's transformative for the reader. Yeah, and the, what you hope is that the reader doesn't need to know the music uh. because they can get a sense of at least his attachment to it, but even it's like a sense of the piece. So this is this kind of piece, you know. It's fun for me, you know, because I don't really lack, again, because it's such a big part of my life, I don't really lack for things to say about it. And normally I'll try and say it even to myself, you know, what does this thing sound like? And I'll invent things that it sounds like until it meets my own satisfaction, mm. which sounds a bit bananas maybe, but that's just the way it is, I'm afraid. So always lots of music going on in my head and hopefully I was transcribing it in a way that, as I say, gave this powerful sense of its meaning to him 
partly to me, but also its potential meaning to like lots of people. You mm. know, I, I am somewhat, and I, I mean, I don't bother. I've made li- millions of playlists for people who never listen to them, and I don't really mind in the slightest. But I am somewhat an advocate for it, as much as I can. I don't like say you must listen to this. You're crazy if you don't like Wagner or anything like that. But I think in the same way as we we go to the Uffizi and we look at the Botticelli Room and we're astonished. People tend not to listen to any music written before 1960. I'm like, music, good music was written well before 1960, trust me. And in fact, some of the stuff that was written in the 18th and 19th century is really quite marvellous. And it's akin to me to um, Titian or something. We mm. look at a mythological Titian painting from 1560 and we don't think, oh, it's irrelevant, it's too fancy for me. We think this is just a beautiful and original and incredibly well-executed piece of art. Mm. And... That would be my only... That's the only thing I ever say to people. They still ignore me, of course, because I also totally... I'm. If I go to the gym, then I'm listening to uh, Taylor Swift and Dua Lipa and uh, my uh, 2000 hip-hop stuff. <laughs> there are different times for different types of music, absolutely. And I don't... Again, I'm not making arbitrations so which is better, which is worse. But if in any way... if Five or six people who read the book thought, oh, this is a bit of a... I might go and try this out. I'd be pretty happy because I think it is something worth worth thinking about and worth holding on to. Mm. I mean, we keep talking about the music, but there's humour in it, dark humour. There is sex, there's drugs. <laughs> uh, and there's a compelling storyline that pushes it through, which astounds me even more that when it came out in September 2022, it got a fantastic review in The Guardian and then seemed to disappear and... I wonder if this is about you choosing to publish it with your own new small literary press called Weatherglass Books. It could be. I mean, it was a bit of a complicated situation. We tried to sell it in the US. We got very, very close. I mean, there are lots of things that, as you're probably aware, that militate against middle-aged white writers with no sales record writing literary fiction. I mean, like if you wanted the... Um, triumvirate of well you're not going to get a deal mate then that's probably it and I didn't really want to do it via Weatherglass but my business partner said I was going to do it as like a subscriber special just give it away at Christmas but he said no I think it's really good I think it merits it and we'll just ignore the fact that uh, you're involved with Weatherglass and he edited me as rigorously as he would edit any one of our other authors and obviously I wanted it to stand up the last it's just horrifying to me that anybody would have thought that it's some form of vanity publishing. I really hope that it comes across that, that it wasn't. So it involves something of a risk. Whether that affected whether or not it was reviewed or not, I don't know. I don't think it really should have done. I think most people who have picked it up wouldn't even have known I was involved in Weatherglass. I'm not even sure it was on the AI. It may well have been. But, I mean, the point is that unless books go out through one of the big five, they are very, very unlikely to get picked up at any great volume. Yeah, that's true. It happens on all fronts. There's some successful... Counterexamples, for instance, Fitzgerald editions have done very, very well publishing a rather high volume of literary and sometimes rather abstruse fiction and non-fiction from uh, all around the world. You know, they found themselves lucky to have three Nobel Prize winners on their on their roster, and they've done well. But I mean, they're still absolutely a minuscule in comparison to the big five. And the retailers, I mean, I'm not going to get too much into book talk, but the retailers want to minimise their risk, so they don't want to take as much inventory as they used to and they want to take things that they think have a good chance of selling a few copies and as a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, so then those things go on the tables and because they've ordered more copies, they put more on the tables and then they're marketed more vigorously in store. There's not much external book marketing, so it all has to happen really in store and via reviews and endorsements. So I don't know. I have to say, if you want an insight into 
how authors feel when their book disappears. It happens gradually, and you think, oh, maybe it's not going to. And then when it does, the pain is somewhat softened because you've been inured to it. It's like, well, I better write another one. I mean, you know... Anybody who writes a piece of... I mean, calling it literary fiction is not great, but I guess you have to, to a certain extent. I, it's not genre fiction. It's not a spy novel. It's not a police novel. Anybody who writes a book like this with any expectation of it doing solidly commercially is round the twist. What you hope is that people notice it a little bit and people you care about appreciate it to some extent. And that slender read... Upon that slender read, you build your next one. You know? mm. uh, Damien, we're, we're out of time. I just have to say, it was so refreshing to me. I, I came across this book by a recommendation from someone, not by five emails and a deluge from a PR, from a big publishing firm. It felt like a genuine discovery. And... I really, really hope that our listeners get that sense and will go out and discover it from themselves. They can buy it directly from Weatherglass Books, your online, or from their indie retailer. And I would go so far as to promise them they will not be disappointed. (laughs) I'm not going to go that far. (laughs) No. The Ghost Variations by Damien Lanigan is published by Weatherglass Books. Damien, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Tamsin Howard, Steph Chungu and Helmi Palai. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.